welcome. This is our fourth of four presentations on grave disability. Uh, and today we're going to expand our view a little bit and think about uh, two options under the LPS Act. First, AOT and South, second, LPS conservatorship. And we have Linda Boyd and Connie Draxler here to focus on uh, on that issue for us. So I want to thank them both for just amazing work pulling together uh, a, a content-rich presentation that I know you will find um, very interesting. And then, uh, and as I said, this is part four. Uh, uh, the other three parts will um, uh, be threaded through here. You'll be reminded of the things we talked about. And this is the last training we have planned, so we know there's more that we can cover. Undoubtedly, there will be more to come. Um, we just won't call it a part five. Uh, so quite an accomplishment in a short period of time. So thanks, everyone. Here's an outline of what we'll cover today. Uh, again, I'll go through a really quick refresher. We'll hear from Linda about AOT. I will re return us to the cases that we talked about in parts one, two, and three. Then we'll hear from Connie, uh, and again, we'll have an opportunity for case application uh, very briefly. Uh, these are some of the aims for today. Uh, straightforward, we want you to get a good feel for AOT and its eligibility criteria, um, understand how referrals work, get a good feel for LPS conservatorship and how it is to work with the Office of the Public Guardian, and uh, have a feel for the kinds of clients who might fit for each of those two. Uh, so just to refresh what we covered in parts one through three, um, we talked at the very beginning that grave disability and LPS is a strategy for navigating the tension between protecting autonomy and doing uh, uh, good for others, beneficence, uh, as we sometimes call it. Um, there can be in certain situations a tension between maximizing self-determination for our clients, doing good for them. We value as a society autonomy, preserving everyone's right to choose and to feel that they have self-determination. And that is why the LPS uh, Act is written in a way that uh, limits the circumstances in which we can take away uh, choice. Uh, around where to live, how to manage money, around certain things, of course. But uh, this is one of those rare situations where we, uh, uh, in order to practice beneficence, we have some limits on autonomy. Uh, we talked in part two about how the wording of grave disability definition of grave disability really can help us uh, establish a strategy for assessing and evaluating whether or not someone is gravely disabled. So the definition of grave disability that as a result of a mental disorder, he or she is unable to provide for his or her basic personal needs, food, clothing, and shelter. We talked about these as two steps, interpreting motives, is, is this person's behavior driven by symptoms of their illness? And then secondly, assessing their ability for self-care around food, clothing, and shelter. Just a quick refresher of the things we do when we're evaluating here. Historical information is very important. Uh, uh, parallel history information from contacts in the environment, those that know the client, see the client, very important. We observe, we listen, uh, uh, we go back again, and we attend to big and uh, uh, big changes and no changes. So big changes like weight loss, 
uh, big changes in behavior or usual routines, location, um, or no changes at all, where you really would over time expect someone to, to change a bit. Either one of those can be really very significant for a determination of grave disability. And we talked in part three about some particular strategies to use to uh, succeed when you write a 5150, working well with the ER, working well with the hospital, um, uh, uh, getting good at writing uh, concise descriptors of the most uh, extreme or severe behavior that you see, always including um, supplemental information when you can, and then calling, uh, advocating, being very present in the ER and on the inpatient unit to bring forward what you know about the client is really critical. That was fast, wasn't it? Um, so with that, actually, I'm going to turn it over to Linda Boyd, Program Head in Assisted Outpatient Treatment. And I'm going to switch over to her slides uh, and uh, have her take it away. Good afternoon. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with all of you this afternoon. So AOT, or Laura's Law as it is known, was um, developed because of the death of Laura Wilcox. So in 2002, uh, Laura was uh, an intern at, she would spend her summer vacations and um, winter vacations from college uh, volunteering at a mental health clinic in Nevada, California, which is a very small county in Northern California. Uh, a gentleman who'd been non-compliant with treatment came in and killed Laura and, and injured someone else in the clinic and then went to a restaurant and killed the manager of the restaurant and injured someone else there. So Assemblywoman Helen Thompson authorized uh, Assembly Bill 1421, which established uh, the out, out Patient, assisted outpatient treatment program, also known as Laura's Law. Her family um, really advocated for treatment for people who are non-compliant with mental illness. I should also just note that 1421 was also the bill that added 5150.05 to the 5150 Welfare Institution Code, which says that you shall consider history when you're assessing for a 5150. So all of those things about trying to make treatment more accessible for people uh, began to be established with Helen Thompson's um, assembly bill. Also, her husband was a psychiatrist, so I think that also stemmed her interest in mental health issues, and she was an, a, a great advocate for mental health and mental health law. So what uh, AOT does, it allows us, the Department of Mental Health, to work with people who are at substantial risk uh, for grave disability or for um, being a danger to themselves or other people uh, before they get to complete deterioration and need a 5150. It also um, helps us with our outreach efforts and we're able to engage them in either a full service partnership or enriched residential services. We have 60 beds with enriched residential services, 300 slots with FSP, but as a part of the FSP transformation, we are going to be uh, working with all of the FSPs um, in order to have them take clients for AOT. I might mention that by statute, that the AOT is a ratio, a client to staff ratio of one to 10. Uh, normally for FSPs, it's for some it's 12, for most of them it's 15 to one. 
Uh, for us, it's 10 clients to one staff. I think I just said that in reverse, but it's 10 clients to one staff. So that implies that they get more intensive treatment, that, that gives them more time to be seen by therapists and case managers. And generally, uh, a therapist will see the client uh, once a week and the case manager sees the client once a week. For some of our FSPs, and you all know um, FSPs very greatly, uh, if a client needs to be seen every day, they are seen every day. And that really is the expectation with AOT that the clients will be seen as often as is necessary to take care of their total needs, not just mental health needs, but, but all of their needs. Oh, sorry. So if a client, the thing that makes us different than other um, programs is that if they are um, not compliant with treatment, we can petition Department 95 for, to ask for mandated mental health treatment. It also then expands our collaboration because now we're collaborating with County Council, Public Defender, Patients' Rights, and we've always, uh, uh, sorry, the phone's distracting me, coordinated with law enforcement as most of you have when needed. So by statute, these are the requirements for a candidate, which is what we call our clients, for a candidate to be referred for AOT. They must be 18 years of age or older. They have to be, have been diagnosed with a serious mental illness. They have, to ha they have to be unlikely to survive safely in the community without supervision. Their biggest, the biggest thing, um, they have to be non-compliant with treatment. So if someone is in an FSP or if you're providing, if home team is providing services to somebody and they're seeing you, but they refuse to see a psychiatrist, they are still engaging in treatment and they don't qualify for AOT, which is a problem we have a lot. People refer because they won't take meds. Um, and so we'll get into that a little bit later, but, but um, if they are seeing a therapist in their case manager, but they're not complying with meds, they're still in treatment and as such would not qualify for AOT. And the way we, um, the way the statute interprets non-compliance with, with treatment is that there have at least two hospitalizations or two forensic incarcerations in the last three years, or a serious act or attempt to harm themselves or someone else in the past four years. So a serious act or threat or attempt at violence or a serious uh, act toward themselves or someone else in four years. So that's four years. Hospitalizations or forensic incarcerations are three years. And um, being 5150 to Exodus does count as a hospitalization. In the beginning, the first county council person we had, Stephanie Reagan, thought that uh, because the statute said hospitalizations, it didn't count. The next person we got determined that because UCCs were not around when the law was developed and people can be 5150 there, it does count. Let me say that the person does not have to have been 5150 to a hospital. They have to have been in a hospital. So even if they go to the emergency room, and then they're discharged from that, we consider that a hospitalization. They have to be substantially deteriorating. So we have a lot of folks, and for those of you who've been to uh, 550, you remember there's a gentleman who lived outside of 
our uh, parking garage on Chateau. He lived there for many years. He's still, I think, on Chateau farther down the street. People referred him to us often and um, we'll call him Sam. Sam would not only when you walked by Sam, would he ask you for food, he would tell you what restaurant to go to and what to order. And interestingly enough, people often went to those restaurants and bought him that food. He had gallons of water, he had tea, he had developed his own living situation. And for those of you who came to 550, you, you all know Sam. Um, and so, he was uh, referred to us several times. The problem was he was not uh, deteriorating. His behavior and his baseline were the same. And in fact, I would argue Sam lived better in some ways than some of our housed clients who don't have nearly as much food or availability of food and services as Sam had. Um, so there are behaviors that that likely would lead to grave disability or harm to self or others. They've been failed to engage in any other kind of treatment that they're likely to benefit from AOT and that AOT would be the least restrictive placement necessary for them to recover. Once a person meets the criteria, we do extensive outreach for a minimum of 30 days, and often it's much more than that. There is also, of course, screening and assessment that we do. If the person volunteers, if they say, yes, gee, I've been waiting for you all my life, uh, we link them to treatment, and primarily, again, it's the FSPs or the ERSs. If they say no, pound sand, and you all know that's probably the nicest thing that some of people say to us, just like they do to you. Um, we, and they are deteriorating, and they are seriously deteriorating, we then um, will a petition for the court to order psychiatric treatment, and then participation um, in the court hearing and following up with the court mandate. So this also is by statute as to who can refer to the AOT program, and it must be someone who lives with a client who's 18 years of age or older, a close relative, and we define that as a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a child over the age of 18. Um, and sometimes family members, like there, in one case we had an aunt and she was the only living relative and she was the person that um, had been providing everything for that client and had been working with the client. So we accepted the referral from her because she was the closest living relative a licensed mental health treatment provider, a peace officer, parole officer, probation officer, or the, um, those should, if you hit them, it should continue. And also the uh, um, director of a hospital, sorry, or a residential program or their designee. So let me just say that in terms of the licensed mental health providers, a, a lot of you have our case managers or you have case managers who know the client well. And so you might be the ones wanting to refer to AOT and that's fine, but the referral itself must have a licensed mental health provider signing off on that referral because that's the law, that's by statute. Once we get that referral and accept the case, we'll be dealing with the case manager all the time. We understand that because you know the client best. But for the actual referral itself, by statute, it has to be a licensed mental health treatment provider, if that's where it's coming from. Peace officer, parole officer, probation officer, they can refer themselves. Uh, 
and we get a lot from hospitals. The issue that we have is that they tend to want to send it to us as a discharge plan and then the person's homeless and they give us no, they say discharge to LA County. Well, we often can't, then we have nowhere to even begin to look for those clients to be able to uh, outreach to them. So this is kind of how the process works. If you look at the upper right-hand corner, we receive the referral. We gather all the information, we do an investigation, and then every Tuesday afternoon, we have a referral committee meeting. And so this is the first program I've ever started where disability rights said to us, the first petition that you submit to court, we're gonna sue you. <laughs> um, and so I've never started a program before where we were gonna be sued right away. Uh, and because of that, uh, Dr. Shaner and the other people who had get done the stakeholder meeting uh, to set up AOT, they determined that it, the committee that reviews these cases should be more global than just the AOT outreach team. So the medical director's office, patients' rights, us, uh, we have a part-time psychiatrist, Dr. Castillo, who's in on all of the calls. We have um, law enforcement who will sometimes attend the meetings. We all gather together and review all of the referrals. What I neglected to say in the beginning, and I can just add a little caveat now, is that even though the law was passed in 2002, it did not really come to fruition in most of the counties until 2014, 2015, when Governor Brown said that we could use uh, MHSA funds to fund AOT, and that gave everyone the monies they needed to be able to implement the program. So for uh, LA County, the stakeholder process began in 2014, and we started the actual first day of service for AOT was May 15th, 2015. So once the cases are presented to our referral committee, if we accept, then our outreach teams go out and they begin to engage the client. We have five teams to service all of LA County. We have two and a half teams housed in Little Tokyo that services um, service area one through four. And we have uh, five, two and a half teams that in located in Lomita that services service area five through eight. If the client accepts services, we will refer them to, uh, we accept them and we have an AOT FSP coordinator who then, uh, who tracks our slots and who will refer to the provider in the service area the client lives in. Um, and we will begin uh, intensive mental health services to offer outreach. If the client refuses and they're seriously deteriorating, we will begin the petition process. So um, if the candidate does not uh, accept services and all of you have the same issues we have when we're outreaching and sometimes people talk to us, we buy food with the CalCard and they'll talk to us only as long as it takes them to eat the meal. Um, sometimes they say pound sand and that's the most we get for them. And again, that's the nicest thing they say to us. Um, if we have to do the petition process, then by statute, the candidate is offered a treatment plan. And once that treatment plan is offered and the person says no, then our uh, psychologist, who's the one who does most of the declarations, writes an affidavit or a declaration and what she's doing is she's affirming to the nine criteria that has the person qualifying for AOT. 
that affidavit or declaration gets sent to county council and then um, he draws up the petition. The petition sent back and Dr. Sharon or their designee signs that petition, sends it back, county council files the petition. All of our hearings are in department 103 of the Hollywood Mental Health Court. And a hearing, it takes place. So what happens at the hearing? So the candidate comes to court they're assigned a public defender. The public defender goes out and talks to the candidate and asks them if they want to accept treatment without having to have a hearing. If the candidate looks at us like, can't you take a joke? Um, then um, they will sign this settlement agreement. If not, then an actual hearing will take place. Uh, so whether they sign a settlement agreement or the hearing takes place, if the petition is granted, then the, um, they are still under the court's purview. And they're under the court's purview for six months at a time. And at the end of the six months, we can uh, re-petition for another six months. But whether they sign a settlement agreement or whether the hearing takes place, uh, they are under the court's purview. If they say no, they don't want any treatment, the hearing takes place, at which time our psychologist is sworn in like any other hearing. The, uh, the county council asks questions. And then this is an important part. So if you make an AOT referral, particularly if it's based solely on the threats, if you make a, a referral and it's based solely on the threats, it used to be that our public defender didn't question that and would accept and, and it was a much easier process for us. We've had a, a change in public defender that the one we had retired and we've had a change in judges and public defenders. So now this public defender issues a hearsay rule which says that if we didn't, if there's no firsthand witness of the event that we can't submit it as evidence. So if you're providing outreach to homeless folks and they're making threats and you've witnessed them and there's no hospitalization, the threats are what we're using as the criteria for AOT, we may need to call you as a witness because you have firsthand information of the threats that were made. If it's family members, which we're trying desperately not to do because we know that puts people in uh, can put family members in harm's way. So we're trying very hard not to use family members, but given this environment, we sometimes have to, um, only with their consent. But, but so we may, you may be called as a witness, which is different than how it's been in the past. But the county council will, will, um, will, ex will question you, I'm so sorry, will question you, public defender will cross-examine, all of the witnesses, our psychologist and any other witnesses. And then the client, if they want to testify, they will be sworn in. Their public defender asks questions. Our county counsel will um, cross-examine if needed. And then the judge rules whether the petition is sustained or whether or not the petition's not sustained and the client's free to go and has no obligation for treatment. So again, the court order is six month increments and it can be renewed. So we do um, comply with, the court does maintain control of that client and that is done with progress reports. I'll talk about that in a minute. 
the court will order treatment and the judge will order that the client uh, comply with all treatment the provider deems is necessary, including medication. However, if that client refuses medication, there is no forced medication with AOT. That's not a part of the statute. So the judge um, asks for it. The judge tells the client they must abide, they must conform and take meds. Uh, but if they absolutely refuse, there's no way for us to force them, which means the black robe effect is critical. So when people respect the court, when they respect the judge and the black, what we call the black robe effect, AOT can be extremely successful. If the client has absolutely no regard for law, they've been arrested 20 times, they don't show up at court, they don't care about the judge, we tend to be not successful and sometimes we tend to fail. <laughs> Uh, so that black robe effect is critical. And let me just say that the court process is generally a very, very supportive process. You can go to the next slide, that's fine. The court process is a very supportive process. It's there to encourage the client. It's there to give the client kudos when they do well. They, there is some admonishment if they're not doing well, but it's never punitive. Um, it's, it's never punitive. So let me just say that um, the candidate will be, will be assigned to an FSP or an ERS. Progress reports are done and they're sent to the court and that's done by the provider. We have 17 contract providers and that's based on often on their behavior. So if they're doing really well, we may put them out a month. If they're not doing well, we may see that client every week in court. And prior to um, COVID, they would come to court. Now with COVID, it's WebEx. If the client, it, let's go to 5346F, if the client is um, mandated to treatment and they don't comply with the treatment and they're seriously deteriorating, the court can order that they be hospitalized for up to 72 hours. Um, and the court does, you know, has in the past been or ordering that for clients who are deteriorating and not complying with treatment. There is a piece of that which says law enforcement can use reasonably objective force to assist us to get the client to the hospital, which is very helpful, as you all know, to get someone on the gurney because it, it's a court order and it does give the, the law enforcement permission to help. If once the, the client successfully completes the six months or a year, we've had some in for two years, when they successfully complete that, there is a graduation, which we've not been able to do, unfortunately, with COVID, but they're given a certificate, they're given a $25 uh, Target gift card, they're um, given the cupcakes and stuff of their choice, the judge comes off the bench, shakes their hands, takes pictures, it's a big, deal and we make a big deal of it. And our clients often, uh, when they are successful, they're extremely successful. We've had people who've been homeless for 20, 25 years who are now in housing and have been in housing for a year, two years. Uh, clients who had committed felonies who are now in college. It's very, very successful when it works. Unfortunately, when it doesn't, it doesn't. We can just skip to the next slide. This just gives you a sense of, because I know we're running out of time, um, it just gives you a sense of where we fit. These are the benefits, and I think you probably already, we've talked about that. So next slide, please. 
this just gives you a sense of if the consumer is in crisis, AOT is not a crisis response program. And we often get the consumer after they've been 5150. After our candidate's been 5150, that's often when PMRT make a lot of referrals to us. If the client is non-compliant with treatment, that's when we get them. If the, if the client is uh, compliant with any kind of treatment, they, they are probably not likely to qualify for AOT. If they're with an FSP and they're never going and they haven't been in two or three months, they are likely, and they have the other hospitalizations or incarcerations or threats, they will qualify for AOT. So um, if it's just that they're not taking their meds, but they're seeing everybody else, they're not gonna qualify for AOT. So the one thing I forgot to put on here is how you get the referral. And the referral is, a, if you Google AOTLA, our referral will pop up. You can fill out the referral online and you email it to the email address here. And then um, there are general line is there and um, our secretary can help people fill out the application for folks who don't have um, access to a computer, which all of you do, and here is our fax line. Um, and with that, uh, thank you all for everything that you do every day. I know this has been a particularly difficult time with COVID and you're still out there putting yourselves at risk, as well as what you do for our most vulnerable people and your clients tend to be our clients. And I can't thank you enough. I don't want you to think it goes unnoticed because we all know we do our job every day and we do it because it's our job and we love it and we're dedicated, but, but you all are going way above and beyond. I want you to know that doesn't go unnoticed. And from the bottom of my heart, I want to say to you, thank you for everything you do for our folks every day. Thank you. Thank you, Linda, very much for a really wonderful overview. Um, just to go through very briefly, before we hear from Connie, I'll briefly go through a case. And uh, if you have done parts one, two, or three with us, you may remember Frank. Frank is a 54-year-old man. You weren't able to find any psychiatric history about Frank. He had a co-occurring substance use disorder, frequently disorganized, pretty paranoid with you. Uh, Diabetic, new infection in his leg he's not attending to, uh, recently disappeared. Uh, you discovered he'd been in San Diego, and when he comes back, all he tells you is he set some fires and got in trouble. He goes in and out of the hospital, but because he clears up pretty quickly, he's rarely there very long, um, but he's not been interested in any treatment in the community. So Frank was a bit of a conundrum, what to do for Frank, how to help Frank. And as a result of this sojourn to San Diego, you have a couple of interactions with some of the folks who live around him. And they tell you his name is actually not Frank at all. His real name is David. He's got a medical record you're able to find. And here's what you uncover. Um, he's been given a set of different diagnoses, uh, psychotic disorder, schizophrenia, substance use disorder, psychosis related to substance use. Uh, maybe he has bipolar disorder, PTSD, 
He's been hospitalized twice in the last year, both times for danger to others. Um, surprise to you. Also, his IBIS record suggests he's been non-compliant with outpatient care. His files keep getting not, you know, they don't, he doesn't show up for treatment. File gets closed. Um, and you discover there is a history of theft, assault, harassment. He actually has no arson history. He's talking to you about fires, but in fact, you find no record of that. Thank goodness makes his placement a little bit easier. Um, but he has been incarcerated. It was a little more than a year ago that he was in Twin Towers. And since his return, um, you know, he doesn't look so good. His leg infection is worse. Um, he's much less responsive to you, seems more confused. Still waiting to clarify with police in San Diego exactly what happened. But you have a question here for Frank slash David that AOT might be an option for him. Actually, let me go back and uh, look at that again. Does David meet criteria for AOT? Uh, we made him up so that he did. <laughs> he has the service use criteria. He has danger to to others. There's been this uh, uh, arrest in uh, 14 months ago. He's deteriorating. Um, <clears throat> he's refusing all treatment, non-compliant with all treatment. So we we created this case to imagine someone who really might might, might work for AOT. Um, so uh, here, kind of what I tried to do is put into a nutshell who are the clients you have who may be a good fit for AOT. So your client is gravely disabled, really seems kind of, ugh, my client seems gravely disabled. Uh, she doesn't really seem like she can live this way any longer. She's not accepting any help. And I really think she's just on the edge right now. She's about to fall apart. Oh, she's lost some weight, I think. She's not talking to me though she used to. She just seems a lot more. Um, distracted by voices. Is she going to be eligible for AOT? So here are the two criteria drawn from Linda's slide uh, about kind of in addition to these markers that are a little like grave disability, deteriorating and not able to care for, for herself and refusing treatment. In addition, these eligibility criteria, one or the other, two or more hospitalizations or incarcerations within the last three years or one or more act or attempt to cause serious physical harm to herself or others within the last four years. Um, uh, in a nutshell, that uh, is uh, a client that may work for AOT. I hope, Linda, that is reasonable from your point of view. Next, we'll hear about conservatorship, LPS conservatorship from the point of view of the Office of Public Guardian. Um, all right, good afternoon, everybody. I'm gonna do a very quick overview of uh, conservatorship uh, 101. So the Office of the Public Guardian is the designated county conservatorship investigator for all LPS conservatorships. What this means is that all referrals for LPS have to come through the Public Guardian's office, and we're the only entity that actually can um, do the initial petition for conservatorship to the court. So 
an individual, a family member cannot just walk into the LPS court, mental health court and um, try to file a petition. Everything comes through the public guardian's office. Uh, referrals uh, are either accepted or rejected by public guardian. And the common reasons why we would reject a referral is that the individual's not a county resident. There's a lack of evidence of grave disability or the referral is incomplete. I do want to talk briefly about the issue around county residency. This can be a bit of a challenge um, in that we have a lot of clients that cross over the borders and with our sister um, counties and sometimes an individual may uh, end up in the county and particularly get hospitalized um, and uh, the hospital tries to refer to us and we are unable to accept that referral. Uh, so uh, just something to keep in mind about um, uh, residency is an important criteria for the conservatorship. So what is conservatorship? Um, conservatorship is a court proceeding to appoint a legally responsible person for someone who's unable to provide for their personal needs or properly manage their finances. There are legally three types of conservatorship in the state of California. We will focus today on the LPS conservatorship, but just for your knowledge, there's also a probate conservatorship, which is usually for older adults with major neurocognitive disorders or developmentally disabled individuals. Uh, the housing conservatorship is a conservatorship available in uh, only right now in San, San Francisco County. This is a pilot uh, conservatorship program that's not currently available in LA County, but it is on the stat, is a, a, a law that's available in San Francisco. It's a civil proceeding requiring proof of need and attendance by involved persons. So what that means is we have to show to the court that there is really a need for the conservatorship. Um, and then everybody has to come to court. Uh, right now with, uh, with the COVID situation, no one is actually appearing in court. We're doing everything by WebEx, which has uh, proven to be very fairly successful um, uh, for us. Uh, and we're hoping that that process will continue. So what's the intent around the LPS Act? Um, there's, I've only listed a few of the uh, intents and purposes that are listed in, the, in the, the act, in the law. One is to end inappropriate, indefinite, and involuntary commitment. So um, you, not having someone, quote unquote, locked up for, you know, lock up and throw away the key. We wanna end any indefin indefinite commitment. Uh, to provide prompt evaluation and treatment to provide individualized treatment, supervision, and placement, to safeguard individual rights through a judicial review. So this, the process that I will talk about with conservatorship and actually the process of involuntary treatment from 5150 to conservatorship has a lot of legal steps to it, a lot of judicial review. And that was intentional in the law that there would be due process afforded to the individual so that they did not lose their rights unnecessarily. Um, another intent is to provide services in the least restrictive setting and to uh, again, establish the procedures for involuntary treatment. 
What are the effects of conservatorship? So it shifts the responsibility for making personal care and financial decisions away from the client and toward the conservator. So the conservator is stepping in the shoes of the individual. We become the individual as the conservator and we will make decisions that are in uh, their best interest uh, that, and, and in accordance with the powers that we get from the court. It imposes significant limitations on their civil rights, such as where to live, what mental health treatment they can accept or refuse. Uh, they cannot execute contracts. They cannot manage their own personal finances. And in some cases, they cannot um, uh, manage their own physical health decisions uh, versus their mental health decisions. That being said, I mean, it does take away a lot of individual constitutionally rights that you are all afforded to, but even though it does that, in some circumstances, it is the best guarantee and, uh, for, for protection for the, uh, in the client's interest. It might be the best thing for them to be placed on a conservatorship, at least for a short period of time. So I've given you some really overall overarching um, themes here around the LPS Act, really why it came to being and what's the goal of it. Let's now get into the actual processes of the conservatorship in terms of referrals coming to the public guardian's office. I'm going to end up talking about two processes. I'll talk about our inpatient conservatorship process and then I will talk about our outpatient pilots that we have going on. So the inpatient conservatorship process, this starts, as you probably are all familiar with, an individual being placed on a 5150 um, in one of the designated acute psychiatric facilities in LA County. Uh, if that individual is um, held beyond the, uh, the seven-day hold or the 72-hour hold, they're then placed on the additional 14-day hold, which is a 5250. At the end of those 14 days, um, if the individual still cannot be released, then they can be placed on a, what we call a 30-day intensive hold, a 5270. If you look at these, uh, the date, the days um, combined with all of this, an individual can be held involuntarily at an acute psychiatric facility for 47 days without further um, uh, legal action. Um, so that's the maximum a person can be uh, held at the at the hospital before a TCON has to be or uh, and a TCON has to be presented or done or public guardian gets involved. For referrals for LPS uh, from an inpatient, we usually see the referrals coming to us at the end of the 14-day hold or the beginning of the 30-day hold. And we have certain criteria that the hospitals are well aware of in terms of getting those documents that referral to us in a timely manner so that we can also uh, do what we need to do administratively and file that petition with the court. I'll also uh, want to point out that uh, if somebody's going to be placed on a 5150, you know that they can be um, placed on that hold due to danger to self, danger to others, or grave disability. Those three standards are also the same for an individual being held on a 5250. Any of the three apply. 
But if the person is going to be placed on that 30-day intensive hold, they must then only be gravely disabled. So they, uh, an individual cannot be placed on the 30-day hold if they are a danger to self or others. There are actually other legal holds that the hospital can do if that's the issue. So all of our referrals coming into us, the client is now being held at that 30-day hold because of grave disability. So the LPS um, referral are for persons with serious mental illness who require involuntary treatment. And at, in the inpatient world, the only individuals that can refer to us are the doctors and facilities that are designated. That is the, all the acute psychiatric hospitals in the county, as well as jail mental health is designated to refer. We also have a couple of um, facilities that are outside of the county in Orange County that have been designated by LA to refer to us. Some of our clients get sent down there, um, transferred down there um, on a hold, and then they can refer to us um, from, from that hospital. So um, we talked a little bit about this. I wanna go through the due process that occurs with our, our holds and what happens in the court or in the hospital. Even though public guardian's not involved, I wanna give you that perspective of what's happening prior to the case coming to us. So um, when an individual is placed on the 14 day hold, the 5250, there is a certification hearing that must take place at the facility, at the hospital. And there um, needs to be a finding of probable cause that the patient is in fact a danger to them, others, danger to self or grave, gravely disabled. At this hearing, um, the patient is represented by patient's rights and the hospital will um, testify to their findings and their reasons why the individual should still be held. There is a hearing officer from the court that will hear that evidence and make the ruling if the person can be certified to remain in the hospital on that hold. Um, there are also uh, Reese hearings. So anyone who is involuntarily held does not automatically get medicated. If they are offered medications and voluntarily take it, that is great. But if they refuse the medications and the hospital believes that the, um, the individual does in fact need involuntary medication, they will file what's called a Reese petition and a hearing will, be ta will take place to determine whether or not that person will be involuntarily medicated. There is a pretty high standard um, that has to be proven around clear and convincing evidence that this individual must be medicated involuntarily. Again, um, if they're on a 5250 or a 5270 hold, that hearing will take place at the facility. If we are the temporary conservator, then that hearing will take place at the court. In addition to all of this, the client has the right to file what's called a writ of habeas corpus. The writ hearing is basically their attempt to say, release me from this involuntary hold. I do not need to be here. And the client is responsible for submitting the evidence to support why they should be released. Um, so our definition or our, our, our basis for an inpatient conservatorship is, is under the Welfare and Institutions Code, and it's gravely disabled, which is defined as the inability to provide for food, clothing, or shelter due to a mental disorder or impairment by chronic alcoholism. 
I will comment that alcoholism is rarely pursued as a primary diagnosis in LPS, primarily just because we don't have any um, treatment facilities that we can usually hold the person in, particularly involuntarily. Um, the other requirement that we need to see is that the person is unwilling or incapable of accepting voluntary treatment. So that's your definition. And that definition, you probably in your mind have at least a handful of clients that you're thinking meets that definition for um, conservatorship and should be um, you know, referred to the public guardian's office. It's a very broad statement that over the course of years, there has been a lot of legal um, litigation around what does grave disability truly mean. Um, and there's a couple of important things to, to point out, especially as it relates to the population you're working with. First of all, there is some case law, a case that went to the appellate court, that states that homelessness in and of itself is not, um, does not make an individual gravely disabled. So we have to get to the next step of what, what, how is their mental illness impacting or impairing their ability to provide for their food, clothing, and shelter. I'll also say that, I'll give you an example of a case that we had recently, and this is a fairly common example of what happens in the court. We had a gentleman who was chronically homeless, um, who was referred to the public guardian's office and we determined he was in fact gravely disabled and we petitioned. And the gentleman asked for a trial. Um, and at the trial, we had the doctor testify that he had been chronically homeless, that he had been chronically uh, non-compliant with medication. He had several incarcerations, so he was getting in trouble with the law and um, that his plan was inappropriate. The, he had a plan, but the plan was inappropriate for meeting his needs. The gentleman got up to testify himself and he was rather disorganized, but he indicated to the court when asked what his plan was, he indicated to the court that he intended to go back to his homeless encampment in the Pasadena area, that he had a tent that he could live in, and that there were a number of service providers in the area that would ensure that he had at least a couple of meals every day and that he could get new clothing if he needed. And for bonus points, he told the court, I know where I can go get some medication. At the end of that hearing, the court informed us that while it was not a plan that we would want for ourselves or our loved ones, it was a suitable plan for ensuring that he had food, clothing, and shelter. And that's the important part. What we're proving here is not about their medication or uh, medical, that their non-compliance with medication or non-compliance with treatment. What we have to prove to the court is that they have an inability to provide for their food, clothing, and shelter. The mental health disorder part of it, we just have to demonstrate that they're their delusions, their psychosis, their hallucinations are impacting their ability to provide for food, clothing, and shelter. But numerous homeless individuals have been able to demonstrate to the court that living a homeless lifestyle, as long as they can get food, clothing, and shelter, does in fact lead to an opinion by the court or a ruling by the court that they are not greatly disabled. Uh, so we have a, a case come through and we've accepted the referral. The public guardian is going to 
file that referral with the court and the court in most circumstances will accept our referral and appoint us as temporary conservator of the person for up to 30 days. We have to have a hearing before the expiration of the TCON or before the 47th day of the involuntary hold. And during the TCON, the investigator is going to review medical records, conduct LexisNexis search so we can find family, um, uh, any information that we can about the person, consult with treating staff, interview family, friends, uh, any significant others, anyone who's been involved with the case, conduct a face-to-face -face interview with the conservatee and submit a comprehensive report to the court with our recommendations. This is just a kind of an outline of how the process goes um, for a TCON. You're going to see that we get that PG's doing our investigation. Um, during the TCON process, a public defender will be appointed for the conservatee. There will be a hearing. The client needs to appear at that hearing. And public guardian will either submit a yes report, yes, the person needs to be conserved, or no, the person is not gravely disabled and will not be conserved. Um, if we are recommending yes, that the client should be conserved, the client has a couple things that they can do. They can agree to the conservatorship or they can contest it and ask for a court trial or a jury trial. And then at those trials, we will either get a finding of not gravely disabled or gravely disabled. So this kind of gives you the, the depiction of the process that goes forward. And I will say um, in, in in our cases when we're looking at whether or not we should recommend conservatorship or not, there's a lot of factors that are going to go into that. We will look at history, but history is not something the court will necessarily look at. Um, we we want to give that information, but they may not necessarily get, uh, history may not play a part in our, uh, in the court's final decision about this process. Um, so I briefly, quickly went over what happens in the inpatient process for a referral, and I now want to talk a little bit about our outpatient pilots that we have going on. So we have two pilots right now. One is through our directly operated clinics at DMH for chronically gravely disabled individuals. Um, we are looking at individuals who are repeatedly hospitalized with medication noncompliance, and alternatives have been tried but not successful. This could include AOT, FSP, um, you know, any kind of um, uh, alternative or lower level of care or treatment that has been tried, and the client is just not successful in that level of care. In this pilot, we are looking for family members to serve as conservator. Um, Primarily, the issue on this is that it's a capacity issue for public guardian. Um, so if family is involved, we would prefer that to be the situation and that they would be willing and able to serve as conservator. This pilot is not available to contracted entities. It is only available to the DMH directly operated clinics. And um, there may be a question about that, so let me try to answer that now. The statute is very clear as to where we can get a referral from. It either has to be a designated facility or it has to be a DMH directly operated uh, program in the way that the statute is written around the prof professional person in charge of evaluation, um, an agency doing evaluation, and that's been determined to be DMH. 
We also have home team um, pilot, po uh, the outpatient conservatorship pilot with the home team. So in this board motion, the uh, board has indicated that home um, and public guardian work together to identify homeless individuals who are gravely disabled that are on the streets and to pr start this process in an outpatient uh, manner on the streets rather than um, having the individual hospitalized and go through the traditional inpatient referral process. So there's outreach and engagement to the chronically homeless, the individuals chronically gravely disabled, so they are not in need of acute care and um, they are unable to survive safely in the community and they're refusing all services. So in this definition, we still have the basic definition around grave disability, which I talked about previously, unable to provide for food, clothing, and sh or shelter due to a mental, mental disorder. But we have this additional code section that is added onto that, which is that the professional person may recommend conservatorship without the person being inpatient in a facility, but the following have to be true. The professional person has examined and evaluated the person and determined that they're gravely disabled and that they've determined that a future examination on an inpatient basis is not necessary for the determination of the person that the person is GD. So we, we have to add that layer on there that they, there's no need to send the person to the hospital in order to assess for grave disability. So we get a referral from the directly operated clinic or the home team, um, and then we are going to investigate accepted referrals. Again, any referral coming to us, is uh, we can accept or reject it. And then in this case, we're investigating on the streets. So for our directly operated clinic referrals, many times those clients are living at home with their families, so our investigation is occurring um, at the home. For the home team, we are actually going out now and doing the investigation on the streets along with the home team. So our investigator is out there meeting the client um, and talking with the client and getting the necessary information with the, from the client on the streets. Uh, public guardian will make a decision whether or not to pursue a TCON or not. So important factor to note here, a referral coming from an inpatient will be set up as a TCON. We have to um, get that temporary conservatorship to actually um, do the rest of our process and to ensure that if uh, that the client doesn't get released from their holds, that there's a temporary conservatorship in place so that we can continue to hold the person in the hospital. Um, but for our outpatient, there may not be the need for the TCON. So we're gonna take that and look at that on a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, for some cases, we will get the TCON after our investigation and we will use the TCON to facilitate placement. In some cases, we may just go straight to a permanent conservatorship. Uh, this is particularly true in our directly operated outpatient um, pilot. We usually just go to a, a permanent uh, conservatorship petition, um, and then we would place the client um, after we get that permanent conservatorship. For home team, we are uh, preferring the TCON route, but again, we're gonna look at that on a case-by-case -case basis. 
So we're going to use our TCOM powers to initiate placement in the least restrictive setting. Some important things that we are um, addressing in this really new pilot that we're working on, we're, we're um, only a couple of months into the pilot, is the things that we'll have to address in terms of placement, prior to placement, medical clearance, does the client need to be detoxed, um, do they maybe need to go to the hospital for a short period of time for some stabilization, maybe the administration of medication, and then can we move them on to a lower level of care, even while on the TCON while we're waiting for the conservatorship process to uh, be finalized. Um, we will uh, consider seeking a TCON RES for medication noncompliance. I think one of the things that we will we can all recognize is um, you can understand the administration um, of medication against a person's will in a hospital in an acute setting, um, kind of figuring out how we're going to administer medication involuntarily in a community setting is a, is is a, going to be a little bit more challenging, and we're still working out the details on some of that. Um, in terms of us going forward with our conservatorship hearing, if we're talking about an inpatient referral, the only person that, that testifies is the doctor from the facility uh, and the client. In our pilot projects, because we really don't have that um, inpatient setting, that controlled setting, lots of documentation and notes um, from all the treating staff and, and personnel working with the client, we're going to need to um, probably have more testimony at the court for these cases that are contested. So we will need the psychologist. We may need the case managers and social workers and other individuals who have been involved with the client who can personally testify to what's been happening with the client. Um, Linda brought up this idea about hearsay. Um, the court does not allow you to talk about something you read about or something that you did not personally observe. So we are going to probably need more people testifying on these outpatient conservatorship cases than we do on an inpatient conservatorship case. Um, and even our deputy will probably likely have to testify, which is not something historically Public Guardian has been required to do. And then once the conservatorship is established um, or not, we will have to figure out next steps. I'm so pleased to announce that we did get our first um, outpatient referral through the process and he actually submitted to the conservatorship yesterday. We had our hearing and um, he's been placed in, in ERS. So now we're just going to talk about this will be a regular conservatorship and we're going to move on with how we provide services to this client and how the home team um, will be connected to that case. But conversely, if a person does not get conserved, there should be a plan in place too for ongoing engagement with that client and see if there's something else that potentially could be um, provided to the client um, in the absence of a conservatorship. This gives you the kind of the diagram of what happens on the outpatient. And really the big significance here is that the order of which things are happening. You have the referral, you have the investigation, and then the TCON, or maybe just going straight to a, a permanent. Whereas in our inpatient, the TCON kind of takes step, is our first step, and then we investigate. 
The other things are going to be standard in our process, which is they're going to get a public defender assigned to them. The client will have to appear in court unless the public defender waives their appearance at that initial hearing. Public guardian is going to have a report, yes or no, and the client can either submit, like what happened yesterday, or they can contest and we can have a court trial or jury trial scheduled at a future date. So, um, a conservator can be of uh, the person of the estate or person in the state may be appointed for a person who's gravely disabled. For the LPS conservatorships, generally are um, person only for private conservators. So if we find a family member who's going to be willing and able to serve as conservator and we'll recommend them and they get appointed, they will be conservator of the person only. They won't have any estate powers, but they can become the representative payee for the benefits. If public guardian is the conservator, generally we are conservator over person and estate. And again, we also go ahead and get um, become representative payee um, for all of their benefits. So I talked about the fact that conservatorship statutorily is a last resort. Um, because this removes the rights, that many of the rights that you and I take for granted, it needs to be the last thing tried, certainly not the first thing, and we should be looking at all other alternatives before we get to conservatorship. Um, so what we're doing in our outpatients um, for the home pilot, offering them all of the services, treatment, housing, um, giving them that and getting that refusal so that we know that the person's not willing, voluntarily willing to, um, uh, or amenable to those services. Um, AOT, FSP, outpatient clinic, wellness programs, those are all things that we're looking at on our directly operated pilot as to things that have been tried before. Because typically these are clients that are maybe in treatment but not doing well and maybe at home with their family member, but they're just not doing well in their treatment and they're refusing to really participate. Some alternatives, how do we define an alternative to conservatorship? So you are not gravely disabled if you are able to avail yourself of food, clothing, and shelter, and that you have present a suitable plan to public guardian or to the court on how you are going to do that. I gave you some examples as to how minimal that standard is in terms of, 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 of showing the court that you can provide for food, clothing, and shelter. Third party assistance. This is a very important um, uh, concept to be uh, aware of. If there is an individual or an entity that is willing to provide food, clothing, and shelter for an individual, and the proposed conservatee is willing to accept that assistance in meeting those needs, they are not greatly disabled due to the third party assistance rule, which is statutory. Um, if they are voluntarily accepting treatment, they may not be that they may not qualify uh, for conservatorship, uh, and we may determine them to be not gravely disabled. We do have some cases in which um, clients will maybe start with us, but we find family or others and they can move out of state. Then, of course, our conservatorships are terminated because the powers are only good in California. 
And if a client AWOLs, we will terminate the conservatorship if that AWOL extends beyond 60 days. But we file a missing persons report. We're constantly checking the um, inmate locator um, for the jail to see if somebody has shown as has been arrested. We're checking you know, in Avatar and anywhere we can to see if the client has shown up to be hospitalized. We're doing a lot of due diligence um, to, I, to ensure that the client has not popped up somewhere so that we can um, find them, get them back into placement and continue the conservatorship. Uh, again, the 60 days is our general rule at this point. We can extend that on a case-by-case -case basis. I talked about um, testimony and I just want to uh, in, make sure that everybody understands that the legal burden of proof that we have is beyond a reasonable doubt. This is the highest standard and it is the same standard in the criminal court. So conservatorship is a civil proceeding, but we have this criminal court element in terms that we have to prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's proving that to the judge so that there's no doubt in, their, in her mind, or if we're talking about a jury, all 12 jurors have to agree that um, the case has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. If one juror believes there's a doubt about grave disability, then they, are, they cannot be found gravely disabled. Just a little bit about what happens after we get the case. Um, once we become conservator, uh, we're gonna we're responsible for managing their daily life and or their financial affairs um, because of their limitations. So we get certain powers that the court is going to grant to us. Placement in an appropriate level of care that meets the neat client's needs and addresses the condition that causes grave disability. We for Public Guardian are looking for a place that can provide 24-7 supervision, can administer medication, and ensures that they have food, clothing, and shelter. When you look at the letters of conservatorship, these are known as powers four, five, six, and seven. Authorization for mental health treatment, including psychiatric medications on the letters of conservatorship. These are powers eight and eight A. We can get potentially get limited medical consent authority. This is known as power 12, but this is for non-intrusive medical care. The best example I have for you is we have a client that has diabetes and they need to take oral medication to control their diabetic, their diabetes. We can get authority to um, over that um, specific uh, medical condition and the treatment of that medication, that, that medical condition, as long as it's non-intrusive. Um, any, uh, no intrusive medical care can be provided to an LPS conservatee unless it's an emergency. If an individual needs intrusive medical treatment, we have to get court authority for that. And then there's a state power. So contracting for placement, applying for benefits, paying bills, providing personal needs funds, and marshaling in assets are all known as powers 11 and 13. LPS conservatorships last for one year, um, but they can be renewed. Uh, so prior to the expiration of the conservatorship, the treating doctor will evaluate for the need of conservatorship. And if the doctor recommends the continuation, we'll go ahead and have county council file a petition. And we start the process all over again, which means court appearances, the client can submit or they can contest and ask for a court trial or jury trial. We have some clients that ask for a jury trial on an annual basis. 
Um, so public guardian will terminate a case if the client is found by the treating psychiatrist or public guardian to, to no longer be gravely disabled. We can terminate the case at any point during that year. Um, and um, but typically what we see is they're probably getting terminated maybe at the midpoint or at the end of the, the conservatorship. A client can ask for a rehearing on their conservatorship at the six month mark. So that's why we see some cases uh, get off conservatorship in the mid midpoint of the conservatorship. Again, if the client is whereabouts are unknown for 60 days, we will request the court to terminate that case. And then upon the termination, we know longer have legal authority to act on behalf of the former conservatee. Um, and so I know that for many of you, you come in contact with individuals who got off of conservatorship uh, for any number of reasons. Maybe the court found them not gravely, the, the doctor didn't show up to testify. And the question that I usually get is, well, can we just put them right back on conservatorship because they just got off a month ago? No, we cannot. We actually have to start the process all over again with a referral, an investigation, whether that's outpatient or inpatient, the process has to start all over again. And then there is the contact information um, for the managers on the LPS side. I've also given the name of Isidro Alvarez is our deputy public guardian who is been assigned to the outpatient LPS pilot with the home team and his supervisor, Louis Parazabal. You may remember this case we discussed before Angela. She was the, the client in part three who was conserved under LPS, 24-year-old woman with schizoaffective disorder, prior hospitalizations, uh, 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 un, unwilling to eat fresh food, she thought it was contaminated, had recent weight loss, looked to you dangerously thin. She was walking into the street yelling at cars uh, when they were stopped, but not quite clear what was happening when you weren't there, refusing all treatment and medication, um, had a delusion that there were uh, demons that meant that she needed to stay on her corner, could not go into a shelter, uh, uh, deteriorating, eating less and less of the things that you brought to her. In part three of our training, you successfully got her into the emergency room, into a hospital where she was conserved. Um, so this is an example of a type of client where conservatorship emerges as an option. But I know there are a couple important questions we didn't get to. Um, can you let us know what those are? And then if the person who asked the question is still here, we maybe could have them on mute and, and bring us some additional details. Yeah, I not I, I think it, I'm gonna double check who asked it, but it says, uh, can you say a bit more about the last criteria about being able to benefit from AOT for the AOT portion of the presentation? That's right. Great question for Linda. What does that mean, being able to benefit from AOT? Sure, and that's been open to interpretation. So, um, so for instance, we have folks who have a large substance abuse issue along with their mental illness. And at first, if it seemed like their primary diagnosis was substance abuse, even though they did have a serious mental illness, at first we contemplated whether or not they would be able to benefit from AOT. And at first we were thinking we might not take those people. AOT has an oversight committee that's 
the Mental Health Commission has an oversight committee made up of stakeholders for AOT. When we presented that to the committee, they said, how do you know people are not likely to benefit until you try? So it is a very subjective thing and we don't use it very much. Now, if someone has a substance abuse issue with their mental illness, we will go ahead and try and, and we've petitioned, we've done all of that. We do find even with petitioning that their substance use often um, does not allow them to partake of any kind of services because they're using their non-compliant with treatment. So although it is in the statute, it is very subjective. So we tend to not look at how much they're likely to benefit. We really try and get them engaged in services um, and then let their ability to engage or not speak for itself. The other thing, let me add just two things I forgot to mention. Uh, Connie made me think of it. So the standard in the AOT petition in court is, is clear and convincing. It's not as high as beyond a reasonable doubt. It's clear and convincing evidence. And the other thing, because I know a lot of DM, a lot of our uh, staff are very hesitant to testify, or even sometimes the program managers feel like they can't testify in court without a subpoena. I talked to Ginger Fong for AOT. I'm, it probably does apply also for Connie. She can speak to this. But because it is continuity of care and mental health treatment, they are able to testify in AOT court without needing consent from the client. Great, thank you for those clarifications. We also, oh, Monique already answered the question about a referral for AOT usually gets a response in two to three weeks. Oh, Christine is asking, can someone get into AOT if they're in another program? So if we often get um, applications from family members or other people for conservatees, and if someone is conserved, they're already at a higher level of care. So they don't qualify for AOT. And sometimes family members who are private conservators want to put them in AOT. And I'm sure they can go in regular FSP and Connie can address that. But because we have that court component, but, but the court component with conservatorship is a, is a much higher level of care as Connie's already addressed. And they're mandated to take medication and things like that with power 8A that we don't have the ability for. So Connie, I don't know if you want to address for private conservatories getting help for their family members. Yeah, I would just uh, uh, just reiterate a little bit more on what you're saying is that we, we look at AOT as, as um, a step below conservatorship and an alternative to conservatorship. So um, ideally, we would like to see AOT tried um, before an individual comes to um, uh, public guardian and for an LPS conservatorship. Um, we do have conservatees who, once they are acutely stabilized, are in FSP programs, so they can be conserved and in an FSP program or any other type of program. The only limit would really be AOT. And the other, to, to piggyback on that, we've had some referrals for people who are coming out of conservatorship or for whom they're feeling like they don't need to stay conserved. We have three of those applications right now. They don't feel they need to stay conserved and they want to refer them to the AOT program. And so coming out of conservatorship rather than going from conservatorship to no oversight at all, they are being referred to AOT and some of those are appropriate. I will also say if someone's in an FSP and they are getting 
therapy and case management, but not medication, they wouldn't qualify for AOT because they are complying with treatment. And again, medication, there's no forced medication with AOT. I hope that answers the question. No, that, that was very thorough. Thank you, Linda and Connie. And then uh, we have a question for Maureen about working with a new referral and needs to determine if the father is still the conservator. Uh, what is the suggestion in regarding to of how to inquire into that? Yeah, and I I'll respond to I see it went pri private to her. Um, that the public guardian can verify if a conservatorship is in place with a private conservator with a family member. So you could contact any of the names, myself or any of the names that were at the end of our um, training and we could uh, uh, verify if there's a conservatorship in place. Monique or Luis, do you have any other questions that you answered in the chat that you wanna bring to the group? Or any yeah. other questions in our last few minutes? So on our side, we had not Luis, but Steve Dominguez ended up oh, answering questions, but I don't, I don't see anything that came up, Beth. Hi. So my question is for Connie, and I just wanted to clarify really for the home team that as we're submitting cases for the pilot project, that the candidates can have not open cases, but just cases that are still in outreach so COS notes, not progress notes, um, unopened cases, right? And that we, but the standard would be at least a minimum of a month worth of outreach notes in IBIS. So this is something we, we had at our last meeting, right, Connie? That's correct. I just want to put that out, push that out to this yeah. um, forum. That's correct. We're trying to, um, so the court is going to be familiar with seeing a chart of information coming from an inpatient, which is at, by the time that we're doing our um, hearing, they're getting almost 45, um, 47 days worth of, of documentation. So we want a good um, amount of documentation, 30 days of documentation. That documentation will need to be submitted to the court at the day of our hearing, particularly if it's contested. So we want something rich there in terms of, of medical records that we can provide to the court. Uh, Latina is clarifying in chat, the notes need to be comprehensive enough to support the petition. Um, so not brief. Um, we want descriptive notes. <laughs> and I do see um, a follow-up question about uh, verifying conservatorship. Can they, is there a possibility to verify past conservatorship? I think they're implying if they aren't currently conserved, but would like to see if they have a history of conservatorship. So we would be able to look into our database um, to see if we had a previous referral in a previous case. So we would be able to, uh, for about, we have data going back about the last seven to 10 years. Um, uh, so we could, we could probably give information about um, referrals that we received in that period. So easiest just to call the the office speak to whoever is willing to do that or should yeah. people come directly? Uh, I would call one of the managers that's um, listed on the last page of my presentation. 
um, and explain that they're, you know, from the home or Isidro could do that too for the home team. He yeah. can do that for any of the home teams because um, he's our deputy that's assigned for this pilot. So Isidro could also look that up. Thanks so much to Linda, Connie, Latina, Ramona, Anthony, Dr. Martinez, Carla, Dr. Rob, everyone else on the home team that have really pitched in to help make all the content relevant, make sure that we uh, make your time valuable here. Really appreciate it. And to Monique and Steve for their rapidly typing fingers through yeah, the chat absolutely. today. Thank you so much. Great to see you. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Thank, Thank you, you Connie. Care.